Again, my name is Jay, one of the pastors here this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, continuing our work through the book of Hebrews. It's been a few weeks since we've uh, been in Hebrews, but if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. Uh, Samantha said around, uh, should be one around you. On October the 25th, uh, 1964, the Minnesota Vikings were playing the San Francisco 49ers. I don't know if you've seen Nate up here this morning, but he is in quite the gear for the 49ers who play today. I just wanted to point you out, Nate, and make you feel good. You didn't wear that in vain this morning. Um, interesting thing happened. Uh, San Francisco had the ball. And uh, they threw to a wide receiver. And the wide receiver takes the ball and he begins to run. And as he's being tackled, he fumbles the ball. One of the defensive linemen comes along. His name is uh, Jim Marshall. He grabs the ball and he starts taking off and he runs to the end zone. Takes the ball and he heaves it to the stands. And as he does, something peculiar happens. Not Minnesota Vikings players come and celebrate him, as would have been the case for a fumble. Uh, Jim Marshall played for the 49, I mean, he played for the Vikings. So it would seem like the Vikings fans would have come up and celebrated with him and gave him congratulations and patted him on the back. But that was not the case. Instead, it was three 49ers who came up and congratulated uh, Jim Marshall on, apparently it was not a touchdown, but was a safety. See, what Jim Marshall had failed to do was run in the right direction. He had actually picked up the football, and he ran not towards his own end zone, but ran towards the opposite end zone. And while Marshall was running to the end zone, what he missed was his team trying to run behind him and flag him down to let him know he was running in the wrong direction. But he missed all the signs. He missed the warnings, and instead he runs into the end zone, he tosses the ball into the stands, and what he thought was a touchdown was now a safety. But, I think, and he gets, the, he gets the nickname, Wrong Way Marshall. Talk about a way to be remembered. Jim Marshall had a great career, but he was in a nickname for the rest of his career, Wrong Way Marshall. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we see this warning that's given to us intending to make us uh, make sure that we are running in the right direction. To make sure all the flags have been there, all the wavings, all the warnings. Like Marshall's teammates, the author of Hebrews has been trying to grab our attention. He is trying to help us run not in the wrong direction of who we used to be or even running towards things that are not acceptable worship, but instead to run towards the right direction, towards a new creation. This is not new. All over the book of Hebrews, as a matter of fact, there are seven warnings for the reader to heed in the book of Hebrews. I want to read these six, the first six warnings because the seventh one uh, is the culmination that we find in our passage today. So if you, you can work, turn with me if you'd like. I'm just going to turn to them. You do not have to do that. But the first one is found in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, 
lest we drift away, drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The next warning is found in Hebrews 3, starting in verse 15. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For whom were those, uh, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell into the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of Unbelief. The third warning is found in chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Pick up the other one, verse 12 of chapter 4. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing of the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give an account. Our fifth one is found in chapter 6, verse 4, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And then the last one is, or the sixth one is in ten. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then we get to our chapter today. Our chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Listen to these warnings. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be, uh, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's the direction uh, I'd like to go this morning. The overall intent of the passage is this. And I would argue that it might be the overall intent of the whole of Hebrews is do not refuse God who has provided a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do not refuse God who has provided a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The question for us is how do we Receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. How do we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Two thoughts on this. The first thought runs from verses 18 through 27. Runs from verses 18 through 27. I will spend 95% of my sermon in this certain, um, in this text. And it is this, that we would run to Zion. That we as a people, how can we live in light of the promise that our kingdom will not be shaken is that we run to Zion. The second thing that we'll see is that we have to run with faithfulness. That we run with faithfulness. As you approach verse 18, there are two mountains that are in view. One that symbolizes the old covenant way of relating to God and the other symbolizing the new covenant way of relating to God. In verses 18 through 21, the writer of Hebrews points back to the passages that we just read from Exodus 19 and 20, when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments and the Law. And the author, by pointing to Mount Sinai, which is one mountain, is trying to tell us something about God. He is trying to tell, tell us something about who the God of Exodus 19 and 20 is the God of the Old Testament, the God that we know. He's trying to tell us something about God Himself. He's trying to tell us of the holiness of God and how utterly horrifying God's holiness is to a sinful people. So much so that people did not even want to speak, or want God to speak to them. The voice of God was so overwhelming to them that people begged Moses not to let God speak to them personally. The people could not handle the majesty, the supremacy, the power, the holiness, the glory of God's voice as it came from the mountains. He says, for you have not come, verse 18, to what may be touched. It was a real mountain. It was a, a real place of worship. But the people could not touch it. If they did, what would happen next? 19 tells us that they would die. 
You have not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages, God, do not speak to us. You are too holy. The purpose of this scene is to point the, us and the original audience to a perfect, holy, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God who is something wholly different than we are. You see, the way that we try to relate to God is that, is that He is one of us. God couldn't be any different than us. He is wholly different than we are, and praise be to Him for it. See, we are sinful. God is not, which creates this chasm between us and God Himself. But this chasm has not always existed forever. We see in Genesis, Genesis that God lived in the presence of His creation, in the presence of Adam and Eve. He lived with them until they, they sinned against Him by disobeying His commands. God being perfect and holy and just. See, He cannot live in the presence of sinful man, so what does He do? He kicks him out of the garden. And he banished him forever for being in his presence and, and walking with him. See, this chasm existed under the old covenant, and the people could not get close to God because of their sinfulness and his holiness. We see this expressed through the prophet Isaiah. When he does see God, what happens when he sees God? Listen to this from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. In the presence of God, in the presence of God's holiness, and just his glory that filled that room. Isaiah proclaims, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. The Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah was undone by the holiness of God. As too were the people at Mount Sinai. You see, the holiness of God is not to be trifled with. We have to recognize this is the character of God. You see, under the Old Covenant, people would draw near to God through the blood of animal sacrifices. And these sacrifices only served as a picture of what was to come in the Messiah, who would be the perfect, final, once and for all sacrifice. People were saved through grace in a coming Savior that was to come. So the writer of Hebrews, by laying out for us that even, even Moses trembled with fear in God's presence, is warning the people in that day, 
not to run back to their old way of worship. The author has already reminded the people that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. To return to the old covenant was to reject Christ and attempt to draw near to God through their own merits, through their own works-based salvation, and enslave themselves back into keeping of the law. Galatians 3.11 says that no one is justified before God by the law. So it was an exercise in futility. To run back to the old covenant was an exercise in futility that would lead ultimately to their destruction. And that was his warning. The warning for us today in this is that we have a propensity to run back to what we know. We have a propensity to run back to what is comfortable. Or to run to things other than God Himself. You see, we find comfort and joy in alcohol, drugs and sex. All sorts of things that we put in the way of who God is and His holiness. And it is to our own destruction. Now God requires more of us. He requires that we tremble and then, and then we get this awesome picture. Because we get this beautiful word in verse 22. But. But. So you have not come to a place that can be touched. Look at what you do come to. You have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Now you've come to Zion. You've come to the heavenly realms where there's a better way. If you are in Christ, you have not come to what may be touched. You see, the word Zion appears 150 times in the Scriptures. As the Bible progresses, Zion expands in meaning and its scope. We first see Zion in 2 Samuel. When David captures the fortress of Zion, the city of David, Jeremiah instructs the people through prophecy, come, let us go to Zion, the Lord our God. So God's presence was there. As we transition to the New Testament, the expansion of Zion has come to represent the heavenly kingdom. Peter says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So when we come to Christ, when we're united with him, we get to go into the city of the living God, the holy city of Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels in festival gathering, that means there's celebration that is happening. There is an assembly, there is a, there is a church. That is the way that, that word is, that word's meaning, assembly means church of the firstborn. That means all those who are united with Christ are gathered together in the heavenly realms. And they're celebrating. And they're joyful. 
For all those who have run to Zion, they are enrolled in heaven. And they get to hang with the spirits of the righteous who are made perfect. That is what we get to look forward to. That is a glimpse and a picture just as we see here in this gathering of the church this morning. Just a glimpse of what we're going to see in the heavenly realms. But our focus too many times is on this world, on this, on this blazing fire, and this darkness, and this gloom, and this tempest. And he's saying, stop looking there. Stop looking at the mountain here that can be touched. It can't be touched, even though you can see it. He said, come to what you run to Zion. Because it has the city of the living God, that Jesus reigns. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and He's a mediator of a new covenant. You see, Abel was innocent at the death of his brother Cain. And his blood cried out, word tells us in Genesis chapter 4, his blood cried out for justice. But even in this, that Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That Jesus was also innocent. But the shedding of His blood brought redemption from sins. Look, at, look with me in, in, chapter, in, in chapter 9 of Hebrews. Starting in verse 11. Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is what Jesus' blood has done for us. It is for those who are believed by faith in Christ Jesus, as Lord and Savior, His blood has covered, He has offered Himself. He can present us without blemish to God and removes us from our dead works to serve the living and true God, that's good news for us. And in so doing, He ushers us into His heavenly Jerusalem. Into His heavenly kingdom. Where we get to celebrate. We get to eat together. I imagine drinking good wine together. Enjoy each other's fellowship and company. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I can't wait to get to the festival gathering? In the heavenly realms, right? But yet, that is our hope, even in this world, that we would that we would receive through Jesus, through His sprinkled blood, redemption to be made perfect. As we rest there, New, New City Catechism uh, that that our small group is. Our community group is working through says this. What hope does everlasting life 
hold for us? The answer that it gives is it reminds us that this present world is not all there is. Soon we'll live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin. And we'll, and we'll inhabit renewed resurrection bodies and a renewed, restored creation. It's good news. For those who are in Christ, we will celebrate, we will inherit this kingdom and be and enjoy and live with God forever. But then we have this warning. We have the final warning, the seventh warning that the writer of Hebrews has given. He says this in verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. The one who is speaking is God in Christ, in and through Christ Jesus. For if they did not escape when they refused Him and warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. So although they were warned on earth to... Uh, um, God warned His people on earth not to commit idolatry or adultery or, or to sin against Him, yet they did. How much more will we not be able to escape for Him who rejects and warns from heaven, who Christ who is seated at the right hand of God? Because there will be a time, there was a time that His voice shook the earth. There's a promise, there's a future promise. And in Christ's return, that not only will He shake the earth, but He will also shake the heavens. That He will usher into a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom here on earth. This is a, this is a once more I will shake not only the earth, this is prophecy from Haggai uh, chapter 2 verse 6. This is a promise that is to come. And that, that shaking, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken, the eternal, may remain. But God's going to return. And He's going to separate the wheat from the shaft. He's going to separate the temporal, the things that can be touched, all the things that we think are awesome and good in this life. The only thing that's going to remain are those things that can't be shaken. Those things that are inherited in the kingdom. I just want to encourage you to not refuse Him who is speaking. That if you're here this morning, and if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I don't know how to warn you any more than what I've already warned you from the Word. That Jesus sprinkled blood speaks a better word than anything else in this world you can imagine or this world can even offer. That Jesus lived a perfect, holy, sacrificial life uh, died a death, lived a life that we could never live, died a death that you deserve. And in so doing, for all those who would believe, would be saved. And if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
Do not refuse him this morning. Today is the day of salvation. And for those who are in Christ, those who are here this morning, you've united yourself with Christ, you've, by faith you believe in the truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus and who He is, I pray that you will not be shaken. I pray that your world will not be turned upside down by trials of this life. Or that your hands would, would desire more the temporal things than they would the heavenly things. You see, we are a people who grieve. We are a people who experience loss and trials and sufferings and difficulties in this life. But we are not without hope. You see, we feel sorrow and sadness. We weep and mourn. We are not shaken by the fallenness of this world. We have a steadfast and a persevering hope in the eternal glories that await us. What does this look like? Those who are in Christ, what does this look like for us? Ed Welch, he gives in his book, Side by Side, two diametrical stories. To help us see what it looks like to inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here's what he says about the first. He was quiet. He was a quiet God fear. Someone called him shy. Neighbors rarely heard him speak, though they would say he was a good neighbor. When he was removed from his home and relocated to a Hungarian ghetto, he was the same old person as if nothing had changed. But when he was herded into a truck that was far too small for the dozens of people on board, when the trip was in its second and then third day without water, when guards opened the doors every few hours and ran, randomly rammed the butts of their rifles into infirm, head, infirm, infirm heads, and when people were dying around him, his heart finally responded. His circumstances dominated the inner free for all of his will. He said these words, Almighty God, why have you done this to us? Have you, have, have you no heart? No feelings? Have you no eyes to see with? Have you no ears to hear us with? You are wicked, O Lord. As wicked as a man. You see, this man indicted God for his actions. His kingdom was shaken and proved to be built on the foundation of sand. Here's the next story. A 54-year-old father of four had a long history of walking with Jesus. One of his routines was to read a psalm every day, and Psalm 22 was one of his favorites. Since he had done this for decades, he certainly was accustomed to speaking honestly to the Lord in all circumstances, and he too could condense his reactions into just a few words. During a routine exam, his physician noticed a highly irregular lesion on his shoulder, which he biopsied and sent to a pathologist, pathology lab for testing. The results would be back in about 10 days. The physician was clearly concerned and suggested the patient return to the office to discuss the results and consider whatever further treatment might be helpful. Ten days later, he made the visit, accompanied by his wife. The doctor got right to the point. 
I have bad news for you. The lesion is cancerous. What does that mean, he asked? What is the treatment and prognosis? It is a malignant melanoma, one of the most aggressive cancers. At this point, the only, treatment we, uh, the only treatment, treatments we have are experimental and they have, done, uh, not, they have shown not much promise. The prognosis, he asked. So I'm very sorry. Life expectancy is usually between 9 and 12 months. He thanked the physician for being helpful, uh, for helpful, for being clear, for being forthright. They arranged a follow-up appointment to talk about experiments, experimental treatments. And he and his wife left the office together and cried. His first words were, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Can you say that this morning? That if you're met with the difficulties of this life, when your world seems turned upside down, can you say with, uh, can you stand with an unshakable kingdom to say nothing has changed? Even though seemingly everything has changed. Life was turned upside down, but not its foundation. You see, his foundation was in a heavenly Jerusalem. It was a hope and a future that was to come. Yet this man died nine months later from his illness. But God is not unjust. But God is holy. And His sovereign plans are better than you and I could ever imagine. Even when it feels like the world is falling in around us, our foundation cannot be shaken. Our foundation cannot be shaken. The second thing that we see, first run to Zion, do not refuse Him, Leave the kingdom, rest in his hope of the, and, and, and that you come to Zion, the city of the living God. The second thing is this, that you and I would run with faithfulness. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Rhetorical question, but how many of you woke up this morning and thank God for such a great salvation? How many of you woke up this morning and were grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken? I don't know about you, but I usually wake up with lots of busyness going on in my head about the things I need to do today. Or I wake up knowing I need to even practice my disciplines, right? I need to jump into the Word and I need to pray. I forget. I forget many times over just to thank God. Just to be grateful, as verse 28 says. Just to be grateful for receiving a promise. A promise from, a, from, from an all-sufficient God. And a glorious Savior. That if I am in Him, my world, even turned upside down, no matter what trial, or situation, or difficulty, that I'm in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What a place to rest. What a place for hope for us. Not only that, we get to offer to God, acceptable worship. 
So if we see that there is acceptable worship, we must understand there is unacceptable worship. So unacceptable worship is this idea that we can, that we can attend church uh, because we believe that God will praise us for it. Look, God, I showed up today. Here I am. Or we read our Bibles to check off a box. Or even we memorize Scripture so God and others will think better of, of us and see how awesome we are. If you don't know, our church is going through memorizing, hopefully you're doing this if you can, memorizing the book of Philippians. Even that endeavor can turn into idolatry if we're not careful. I remember having a professor in Bible college. And one of the things that he did was he knew. I've never seen a professor know, memorize so much Scripture. And over and over again, he would, he would just speak Scripture while he was teaching without looking at notes or anything else. And he would say, I know over 500 verses of Scripture. But about halfway through his teaching, something happened. He repented to the class. He repented because what he had done was he had made memorizing Scripture an idol for him. And he knew it and he recognized it. Somewhere along the way, somebody pointed it out or whatever it was, God... God got to him, the Spirit spoke to him, and he repented of his idolatry. What seemingly was an amazing, good, help, helpful thing had turned into something that was idolatrous, idolatrous and was unacceptable worship. As it happened so quickly, you and I would worship in a way that was unacceptable. But acceptable worship is people who are, A, people who are constantly repenting, people who are attending church regularly to praise the God of the universe, to, to hear the Bible read together, to, to read the Bible, to know God and be changed by it, to pray with humility and expectation. This is what it means to worship God, amongst other things. And we do this with reverence and awe. F.F. Bruce says, reverence and awe before His Holiness uh, before his holiness are not incompatible with grateful trust and love in response to His mercy. So we worship with reverence and awe because of what we receive in thanksgiving for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And then we end with this, that God, our God is a consuming Fire. It's interesting that this section of verses ends with God's holiness. Begins with God's holiness. And it ends with God's holiness. God is a consuming fire. It is a picture, and it's also referenced back in Deuteronomy, of who God is. He's a jealous God, it says in Deuteronomy. When it says these words, God is a consuming fire, because He is a jealous God. His jealousy is not sinful. His jealousy is a, is a picture of His attributes. Of who He is. And He is jealous of any worship that goes to other things besides Him. And that God will judge us. That God's wrath will be known to those who, who refuse Him. Who is speaking. 
And so we worship with reverence and awe for a God who we know is holy and true and pure and perfect and sovereign and just. We rest in Christ. We rest in the blood of Christ. So do not refuse God who has provided a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'll end with this. 30 years ago, uh, over 30 years ago now, maybe you remember the shuttle Challenger, the NASA Space Shuttle Challenger. Does anybody remember that story? Seeing it? I remember being in class. And our teachers, one of the things that was, a teacher was going up into the space shuttle for the first time. So it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And so our, uh, most of the classrooms of my school were showing uh, the video. And as the, as the shuttle took off, 73 seconds into its flight, burst into flames. Burst into flames. It's tragic. All these kids watching, I remember my teacher like panicking, uh, didn't know what to do, went turned the TV off real fast, and, like, was that even real? Did that just happen? You see, what happened was prior to the challenger taking off, there was a contentious pre-launch meeting. One that led to despondency. There were tears shed in this meeting. There was arguments. There was infighting. Because there was one engineer who said this flight cannot happen. This shuttle cannot take off. There is one seal that we have not tested in conditions that will be, that will be tested, that will be taken off in tomorrow. And despite his warnings and despite his concerns, the majority prevailed. And what happened? The O-ring failed. The shuttle exploded. And we live in light of the warnings. We know what happened. Church, I want to tell you that you will stand before God. You will stand before Him in judgment. And for those who refuse him who is speaking, you will suffer the punishment that is worthy of your sin. An eternal judgment. But for those who are in Christ, for those who are united with Him, you get to walk into the heavenly Jerusalem. You get to go into the, with the innumerable angels in celebration of who Christ is in the assembly of the firstborn. Do you believe this good news today? Do you believe this good news? Do you rest in it with joy and hope? Pray that you do. Pray that you would not refuse Him who has called you to Himself.